called this um, group of podcasts Wildlife and Adventure because I wanted to include um, some of the less usual things. So this particular uh, podcast isn't so much about wildlife, but it is about more the adventurous side. And this was uh, going to Moscow in um, 1999, it's quite a long time ago now, and um, then going up to a place called Zukoski, which was uh, one of the... Um, uh, more restricted in, in, uh, in well think of Russian restricted this even more restricted um, air force bases and um, there I got to fly quite an old aircraft a MiG-25 now if you don't know what a MiG-25 is it was designed back in the 60s I believe to um, shoot down spy planes back then uh, certainly in the early 60s late 50s early 60s there they didn't have the, the sort of surveillance satellites that we have now. So what they would do is um, send up aircraft to take photographs from high altitude. And ideally, those altitudes would be too high for surface-to-air missiles to reach them. At least that was the plan. Um, one aircraft designed specifically to do that by the Americans was the U-2 aircraft, which, um, if you've ever seen it, is quite odd-looking because it has um, a very long, quite narrow looking wings so it looks in some regard more like a, a glider than um, an aircraft but it was designed specifically for that reason so the MiG-25 came about as a way of combating uh, those kinds of uh, aircraft and it's quite a crude aircraft it's essentially two big jet engines in an airframe and um they can fly, um, I think they've got it up to 100,000 feet. And basically, if you don't know how the atmosphere is set up, it's basically in layers. And you've got the um, the stratosphere, or rather troposphere first, which is up to about 60,000 feet, thereabouts. So that's the part of the atmosphere that we um, live in. So sort of 50, 60,000 feet. These boundaries move a little bit depending on uh, the temperature of the air. And... To give you a term of reference, if you've been in a, an airliner, they will typically fly between um, 30 to uh, maybe 38,000 feet, that kind of range. So they're in that sort of band. So, um, And Concorde, when it was flying, would fly much higher. That was touching the stratosphere. That was at 60,000 feet. And above that, the stratosphere is the next layer. And here the air is much, much thinner. And basically the air thins out as you get um, higher. So... Um, what that means from an aircraft perspective is you've got less air in which your wings can work uh, because the, the air is much thinner. So hence you need these much bigger wings to create enough lift to keep you airborne. And um, if you if you go uh, sort of so high, the other thing that happens is your control surfaces, ailerons and rudder and that kind of thing, they don't really have enough air to work in. So they become the aircraft becomes more difficult to control. And this is where you would switch over to using rockets. Anyway, that's enough about all of that. <laughs> so um, the MiG-25 is essentially two huge aircraft. It's quite a crude aircraft in that regard. It's not elegant like uh, like some of the, uh, the the aircraft you're probably more familiar with. But it was quite effective at getting up very high, very fast, and then firing off some um, air-to-air missiles at whatever it had gone up to intercept. So it was designed that way. And what the Russians also did, they designed or they built a few versions of the MiG-25, which were dual cockpit. So they, um, the MiG-25, the normal aircraft, had a single cockpit. 
uh, whereas the dual version, which is what I flew in, had a, um, a, a two cockpit. So it was in a like a tandem arrangement, one behind the other. And so that was what the, um, the Russians had. And now we sort of, I guess, fast forward to the late 90s, 99, and the Soviet Union had gone. Russia itself was going through a bit of economic turmoil and they were using whatever resources they had to create income. And, and obviously tourist money was a, a big one, particularly top end. So you could charge quite a lot of money. The Titanic that I had spoke about going to the Titanic in previous podcasts, that was very expensive. And basically the um, the academic Keldish would be hired out with the two Mir submarines for quite a lot of money. Uh, it cost me to over £20,000 at the time. In That was in 2001 to dive down to the Titanic but it was a, a kind of niche resource that the Soviets had and of course the MiG-25 is another one so you could spend much less I spent about £8,000 to go on what was essentially a half hour flight but we did go very high so basically once I'd been picked up from the hotel driven up to Zhukovsky which I believe was about an hour uh, an hour's drive out of central Moscow where I was uh, staying and the process was I had a medical to make sure I was fit to go. And uh, I must admit, my um, I was a little bit off, mainly because I'd got up really early the previous day at about 5 a.m. to get the flight to Moscow from, from where I was living. I was living in uh, the UK near London. And um, because, and I, and I had to, I think I was being met at seven o'clock in the morning. Now, Moscow is a few hours ahead of London, so again, I had another really, it felt like, early start, probably about 4am, so I was not quite all together, or not quite as fit as I should have been, so uh, anyway, I just told the doctor I was feeling really excited about the flight, and that's why my heart rate was off and all this kind of stuff, so they decided to let me fly, which was rather nice of them. So I then had a briefing, and uh, just about the flight, now because I'd flown before, I was pretty familiar with how it all worked. I hadn't flown jets before, but um, I'd flown um, propeller-driven aircraft, so that was pretty standard. And then they took me off to have some ejector seat training. So we went upstairs, and it reminded me of Farnborough, because I used to um, do some work with um, um, the UK military in, in, in my job at the time. And it reminded me of these sort of 1950s-built uh, buildings, two stories. Uh, a lot of lecture rooms or labs or whatever. And they sat me in a chair and they just got me to practice the ejection procedure, which was basically um, both feet on the floor, sitting down, back straight, uh, sort of chin up a little bit, so your head back is back. Teeth together, back teeth particularly, so you can't bite your tongue. That was the main reason they did that. And then the ejector... Well, the ejection handle was like a D-shaped ring that sat between your legs. So you would basically get a hold of that. And in the top of it, there were two triggers. So what you would do is kind of hold it in both hands. The command was eject, eject, eject. On the third eject, that was when you would push in hard with the heels of your hand to release these triggers while pulling up this sort of handle. And that was the mechanism that release the ejector seat and the, the canopy would fly off and the the whole seat would come out and it, it was one of these where the seat itself had the parachute so I didn't have to worry about climbing out of the seat out of the seat while it was in the air and then activating the parachute that was all done automatically so all I had to do was to 
um, they hit, they hit the triggers on this D-ring and pull up really hard. So that was all fine, just sat, sitting, sitting there in a, a chair. So the next part of the process was they stuck me in a pneumatic rig, which basically meant I had to climb up on top of a desk, basically, and sit in this other chair, which um, had um, a pneumatic kind of um, system in it. Uh, there was um, an air hose going out of the window, <laughs> and outside on the ground below was a compressor, which I could hear running, so a petrol-driven um, compressor to create compressed air, which would fire this mock-up of the ejector seat. So we went through the drill again, and um, so we did the ejector deck, eject, 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 and I made sure my back was in the right place because it really compresses your spine if you have to use these things. And um, I think there's a limit with most air forces. You've got a maximum, I think it's three ejections. It might even be two with some because it does compress your spine and you do that too often, you've got serious problems. So um, they gave the command and um, I pushed down really hard with the heels of my hand while I was pulling up as hard as I could. And basically this whole chair, kind of, the chair sort of shot up about, well, it felt like about four feet. I don't know what it actually was, but it was, um, you know, nearly a metre and a half. So, so that was quite entertaining. And I got off that thinking, um, you know, I hope that's it. And I don't, we don't have to do that for real. And um, I then went off to the um, changing room to get kitted up with the flight suit. Now that involved uh, basically stripping down to my boxes. I was then given some full length thermal underwear to put on. And then over that, they put a G-suit. Now, that's essentially, um, it's kind of a, a sort of um, full length, full arms, full legs um, suit. It has a lot of laces on it, and you, they get tightened up. And the the point of the G-suit is to stop your body fluids moving around too much. So if you're when you're pulling a G, um, which is a, a, a 1G is, is normal um, gravity, 2Gs, you're feeling twice that amount of gravity, so everything's really it feels really heavy. 3G, etc., it sort of multiplies up. And what when that goes on, what tends to happen is the fluids in your body will tend to be thrown to one edge of your body, and that can create um, tunnel vision, blackouts, grayouts, all this kind of stuff. So the G suit is designed to keep everything in, in place. So they put that on, and then there were some coveralls that I had to put over the top of that, and that include, and in the G suit was that a G suit? Sorry, was also the um, just the harness where the um, radio clipped in, and I would clip into the cockpit, and the um, um, hose for the air supply. So all that was kind of built in, and um, then there were the coveralls, and then finally I brought with I read an article, and it was Flight Magazine in the UK um, a few months earlier about a guy who had done this trip. But it hadn't given him any boots. And his point was, if you had to eject at altitude at like 80,000 feet, it's really cold out there. It's, I think, minus 30 or something like that out there. So things are going to get cold very fast. And he was just in his regular walking shoes. So I thought, well, OK, they're not going to give me any boots. So I'm going to take my motorcycle boots. So that's what I did. And um, I put my boots on. And this poor chap was wrestling away and managed to get my coveralls on over the top of the boots. And then when I stood up, I remembered where I'd put my spare batteries for my camera. I had my, my old Minolta X700 at the time, and that I'd stuffed them because I just had carry-on bag. I was stuffing thing in, things inside the boots. That's where I'd put these um, sort of flat hearing aid type batteries. <laughs> I realised when I stood on them, that's where the spares were. So I decided rather than put this chat through all of this again, I, I just trust that I had enough power in the batteries. I mean, no new batteries in the camera anyway, so it should have been good, but I like to have a backup. 
So um, off we went, and they checked me out with the helmet, which was one of these, you know, rigid things with the um, the slider on the top in the middle, which slid down the, the, the sort of big shades, the black shades, the really cool-looking things, and um, all of that. And then so then we went off, and they walked me out to the uh, the aircraft, and um, the doctor came with me, <laughs> made sure I was okay. And I was in the front cockpit, so I had to climb up this ladder to get into the front cockpit, and um, then sort of stand on the seat and then kind of get down into, into inside the cockpit. While I was at the top of the ladder, because it's actually fairly high, this guy got a hold of my ankle, I think, to stop me falling off. But honestly, if I had fallen at that point, I'm not sure he would have done very much to stop me. Uh, anyway, I got in and um, he then helped me suit up, strapped me in, plugged everything in. And I had my camera with me, my uh, Minolta X700. So I kept that handy. And then the, um, the I'd been introduced to um, Vladimir, the the pilot, and he sat in the back, and you know we checked all the radios out so that he could talk to me and all this sort of stuff. And uh, off we went. And while we were waiting, we saw this um, Sukhoi, uh, I think it's a twenty nine. It is gorgeous, <laughs> absolutely beautiful airplane. Very very streamlined. Very uh, they're, they're very impressive aircraft actually. And next to this thing we were in, which um, the windows looked like somebody had in a bit of a hurry, just put them in and stuck putty with their thumbnails. There were sort of thumbprints all around it. Uh, some of the controls were actually had wires through so that I couldn't activate them. And there was a, so I had a joystick between my legs and um, at the top of that was a red button and I sort of, you know, became a five-year-old again and I was, um, you know, ready to press the guns. And it turned out that was actually the autopilot, but never mind, there you go. Anyway, off we went and... Um, Really fast taking off and, you know, really amazing, beautifully balanced aircraft and quite noisy, I have to say. But having flown things like um, Cessnas before, this was just something else. And uh, we climbed pretty rapidly and I could feel the, um, the the air cooling, you know, against the cockpit as we as we climbed. Now, they had offered me a warm jacket, which I declined because... Um, it was it was October, but it was still pretty warm on the ground, at least. And I decided I'd rather be a little bit cold than too warm because if you get very warm and you start doing aerobatics the chance of you throwing up are almost 100% so I decided I really didn't want to do that so I declined the jacket so I did feel the change in temperature very quickly and we did climb quite rapidly and um, once we were clear of the ground um, uh, Anatoly asked me if I uh, sorry Vladimir Anatoly was in the Titanic so Vladimir asked me if I'd like to take the aircraft so I did it so I had it on the stick and I, we were just climbing and we were gradually increasing speed and um, I, we had a mark meter which showed me we were getting close to the speed of sound. And that's where um, Vladimir took over again. And we went through the sound barrier. We hit Mac, Mark 1 and then kept going. And I wondered if I would notice a difference, if there'd be a change in the sound or anything like that. Because, you know, the noise, the noise from the engines was now behind us. Uh, but of course, the, the, the noise I was hearing was coming through the airframe. So it didn't make any difference at all all that happened was the the needle kept going and um I, I got to fly it again um at supersonic speed and then we were climbing higher and higher we actually hit mark 2.2 so that was slightly faster than the concord flew and as we got higher what i could see was that the um the sky around me was getting darker and as we got much much higher once we got up we got up to around eighty thousand feet once you're up there, you can first of all see the curvature of the Earth. And there, there were no clouds that day, so there wasn't any sense of really climbing. 
Um, but I could see the curvature of the Earth and also the atmosphere got much thinner that I could see. So on the horizon, which was quite clearly curved, there was also a white band and then a blue band and then everything else. And that was probably a couple of two to three finger widths above the horizon with that kind of banded colour. And then there was nothing. Everything else was black. And that was basically because we were above the... Um, the troposphere, which is most of the things around 80% of the atmosphere is in the troposphere, so the lower part. And by then we were in the stratosphere and everything was black and the moon was out and um, I could see the moon quite clearly in this black sky. So we did some turns and things and uh, I had control for a little while. I tried taking some photos, but what I noticed was as we were in this 2G bank, we sat in the bank for a little while and I could feel not only my arm and my camera felt really heavy, even at 2Gs, but I could also feel my internal organs because <laughs> we were sort of banking around to the left. They were heading off to the right. And I could also feel myself sweating quite a lot. And um, so it, it was kind of, it was interesting. It wasn't so much unpleasant. It was just more of an odd kind of sensation to have. And I took some photos and then um, uh, Vladimir did some uh, rolls and things as well. So he just pinned the... Uh, the nose on the horizon and just did a hundred three six degree roll. We would just sort of span basically around our axis, and that was really interesting because when he did the first one, I, I as as I was as I was going upside down, my instinct was to grab the stick, but of course he could have he would have felt that, so I had to fight my impulse and just sit there as everything flipped upside down. But he was very good. He kept that. Uh, there was an antenna out the front of the nose, which was our target point, and he just kept that pinned in place. I had a go, and I was all over the shop. Um, Anyway, so we did our flight and then we came back down again. Like I said, it was only a half hour flight. And um, as we were coming down lower, uh, I, I was starting to feel unwell because with the um, the rubber mask that I had for oxygen, that was a very strong smell of rubber. And once we got low enough uh, that I didn't need it, I kind of popped it up and to be popped it off. And that made me feel worse. So I was absolutely determined not to throw up either in the mask or over the console. And, and thankfully, that was the outcome. But... Uh, we did do a high speed past the runway and um, Vladimir did a, another one of these rolls as we <laughs> went past the runway, which i got to say, the state my stomach was in at that point. I didn't thank him for it, but anyway, all was good. And and then we landed and it was it was over, but it was such an amazing experience because um, I grew up with the space race and I, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was growing up until I realised I was um, in the wrong country for one thing. Um, I'm actually quite short, but which wouldn't have been a bad thing for an astronaut, but there you go, it, it never eventuated that was probably as near as I got the combination of that and the Titanic because the 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 um submarine itself was sort of very similar in many ways to a spacecraft so that was an amazing experience so I have flown faster than, than the speed of sound was known as supersonic for a little while <laughs> where I was working um so I think it was okay um but there you go so the the MiGs now as far as I know have been broken up for scrap I don't I think there might be one dual cockpit uh, variant still around but they are um, not really around anymore so it was just one of those opportunities that happened to come up I happened to have the money to do it and was able to do it and um, and that's really I guess my my advice if you're listening to this say yes to whatever comes up and worry about the how later and um, you will get to have some amazing experiences with any luck so that's this podcast I just wanted to share a little bit of that experience I hope you've enjoyed it and um, I'll speak to you again in the next podcast bye for now just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, 
they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now.